If you could potentially one day be a million dollar company, they're not interested. But if you could one day be a billion dollar company, they're interested. But then there's also the fact that 96% of these companies are going to fail. So your two outcomes are either billionaire or bust. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, welcome to the Lady Brains podcast. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for female founders and founders-to-be. If you're smart, savvy, and ambitious, then Lady Brain, you are in the right place. Get ready for a dose of inspo, hard-hitting truths, and actionable insights. Strap in. How do you bounce back after your first business goes under? How do you find the strength to create something new? Our guest is Sarah Neal. She's the founder of Miss Tyler, an online shopping and body positivity app, which helps women find clothing for their unique shape and size by connecting them with others who look just like them. Sarah came up with this idea after realizing that she and her friends were returning most of the clothes they bought online because they simply didn't fit. Over the last five years, Sarah's refined the concept, she's raised a million dollars in pre-seed, and the app's been downloaded over 80,000 times across 100 countries. This wasn't Sarah's first rodeo though. Her previous business, Doodad, failed spectacularly. Despite the fact it had financial backing, early traction, and incredible growth. You won't believe how this all went down. In this colorful conversation, you'll hear how Sarah managed to recover from her first failure, the impact that being an entrepreneur has taken on her personal life, and why she thinks Miss Tyler will either be a billion-dollar business or go bust. So we would love to start the conversation by learning a little bit more about where your life was at in the lead-up to Miss Tyler. Can you paint a bit of a picture? You were overseas, you were in New York. What were you doing at the time? Yeah. So at the time I'd been working for a company called Ultra Mobile for six years and we launched another company called Mint Mobile and it was a really fast growing company in 2015. So a couple of years after I joined, we were actually number one on the Inc 500. So it was literally the fastest growing company in America, private company in America. And it had been great. I'd previously had my first startup and I loved that. And I really wanted to be an entrepreneur But being in the US, I needed a visa. And so I'd stayed in this job probably a lot longer than I would have normally just because I wanted to be in America. But it also meant that I had six years of pent-up entrepreneurial energy. (laughs) And so eventually it got to a tipping point and I decided that I just needed to go full-time building a business. I'd been working on a bunch of side hustles over the last six years, but side hustles are great, but they're the first things to get deprioritized when business gets busy or your personal life gets messy. And so you can't really build something from those very easily. So I decided to quit my job and uh, move back to Australia and give it my all and go full-time building a business. Mm. Before you did that though, you just mentioned you had some some sad hustles and you had another business. I think it was called Doodad. Can you tell us a bit about that? You did end up closing it down in 2012. What happened? I had spent my career by that point in marketing Mm-hmm. Um, on the agency side and the client side, mostly within telecommunications, it kind of became my pigeonhole. I'd worked for, you know, Boost Mobile, Vodafone, Samsung, Telstra, pretty much all the telcos. And when I moved to New York, I started working for, surprise, surprise, another telco. <laughs> and I was running, I was running sales and marketing for this company called Kiku. And it was a privately owned company. And the owner was this wealthy, entrepreneurial, multi-investor guy called Michael. And a year into working for Kiku, I had this idea of this SIM card for travelers that was data only that I thought would be really compelling. And I thought there was a huge gap in the market. 
So I'd pulled together a feasibility review and decided this is what it's going to cost to get it off the ground and this is what we need to do to, to pilot it. And I presented it to Michael thinking that he might approve me to run this as a product that I would manage. And instead, he said to me, Sarah, I'm going to give you a million dollars. I want you to set up this company. You're now the CEO. Wait, this was your boss? So this is the owner of the company. Oh, my so he, gosh. <laughs> yeah, he was normally based in London and he was just in town. It was just this, this sort of thing that happened. So at the time, I'd never really thought about being an entrepreneur or a founder. And it was just kind of given to me. And I also was to keep my full salary, which is not a startup salary, not, not normal at all. I know. Wow. I know. It's like the most ridiculous story ever. <laughs> It's like, here's a million dollars and keep the security of your job and yeah. work on this thing. Like, never, <laughs> never happens. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it doesn't happen, but it sometimes does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, and you're going to get 4% equity into this business that you build from scratch, which I was like, that is amazing. Basically, I can have the same salary and rather than doing sales and marketing, which I know I can now have the opportunity to become a founder and run a company. Mm. So it was just incredible. And I was like, and one day, if it's worth a billion dollars, I've got 4% of that. Fantastic. So I basically started building this company. I found an agency to build the back end and the customer portal. I had a, a design team that were building the brand. I had a telecommunications provider in Nevada that was providing the connectivity. I had a SIM manufacturer in Ireland. We were getting the plastics made in Asia. So it was all coming together. And we basically got to a point of launching the business. And it was fantastic. There was definitely like a lot of things that went wrong, but we, we honestly had a huge amount of success. This was back in the days when yeah, 78% of people were turning off cellular data when they traveled and just kind of relying on hotspots of Wi-Fi wherever they could get it. So at a time when you literally don't know where you are, you don't know mm. where to go, you don't know anything, people were going off the grid because it was just too much fear around bill shock. Yeah. And at the time, there was always like media articles of you know, my phone bill was bigger than the entire trip. I yeah, remember that. Jumping from Starbucks to yeah. Starbucks, sucking up the Wi-Fi yeah. wherever yeah. you could. <laughs> and like you, your parents had no idea where you were. Like, yeah. oh my God. And it was this fear of like, I can't turn on data even for two seconds to check mm. something because then it's going to no. download all my emails and all of a sudden that'll be a thousand dollars. Yeah. 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 one thing. Yeah, risk so. your safety over having to pay. Uh, yeah, exactly, big bill. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I only might get kidnapped, yeah. but I'll definitely yeah, get kidnapped. If I get kidnapped, I'll think about it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll consider it. Yeah. I'll consider turning it on. Yeah. Oh, dear. What actually happened was I mean, first of all, like we got the product up and running. We launched it six months after having this business plan, which is really fast for mm, something yeah. technical like huge that. Fast. Yeah. We had huge success, honestly. Like we were on TechCrunch and NextWeb and Gizmodo. And we had customers, you know, from day one, there was two days ever that we didn't make money and we grew revenue 10% week on week for six months straight, which for any business owner, like that is like, even at the time, I didn't realize how good that was. Yeah. I, you know, I was like, oh, we're only doing $30,000 a month. You know, we're growing really fast, but you know, I, I just didn't know. So that was all going really well. The issue was that Michael had a bunch of different investments mm. and he had a lot of stuff going on in his personal life. And he was sort of managing these things very ad hoc. So he'd be like, you know, just tell me when you need money and I'll give it to you. It wasn't like I just had a million dollars in the bank. And so sometimes I'd be chasing him for payments and be like, I have to do mm. payroll. Shall I just like put my own money into the bank account to pay for it? And he's like, no, 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 I'll get it to you. But then it wouldn't come. Mm. Anyway, what happened was he decided he was sick as well. And he had all this stuff going on. And he was just like, I'm overwhelmed. I can't deal with all these investments. 
I'm going to double down on enterprise only and anything consumer facing, I'm shutting down. And I had two weeks to shut down the business. (gasps) Holy crap. (laughs) What a tumultuous time. I was super transparent with my whole team. At the time, we had a product manager, a developer, a customer marketing manager, and then we had a call center of five people in Canada. So we all knew what was happening. We basically put together a plan of like how we'd wind down the company. I really tried to find a way to save it until the very end. And then with 48 hours notice, we basically emailed customers saying, unfortunately, we're shutting down. You know, you've got 48 hours to find another form of connection for your trip. We'll be refunding any unused credit. And I said, I'm really sorry that we're giving you such little notice, but we really did try to save Doodad until the end. And Mm. I thought I was honestly going to get like a backlash of like angry customers complaining about this. And I didn't get anything negative. Like I literally got bombarded with emails of thanks, like people showing support and just being like, don't feel bad. We really appreciate you giving this a go. Like we really love this product or like I just received my SIM. I was looking forward to using it traveling in Europe. Mm. Like one person said, like, is there anything we can do to help? Like, for instance, if I carry a sign that says, save doodad down the streets of Paris, will it help? Oh my God. Because if it will, I'll do that. Bless. So yeah, I mean, it was absolutely devastating. My team were incredible. We basically like spent the last couple of days refunding everyone's credit. And then we basically turned everything to out of office and walked out the door and we went out and I bought everyone champagne and we just had like a toast. To essentially mm. it'd be a year from beginning to end. So it was it was absolutely devastating. And especially now, I guess, like, you know, I guess eight years on, ten years on, mm. like now knowing how hard it is to to have that sort of success on a business, like at the time you're in it and you just see all the things going wrong. And like we, we definitely had things going wrong. So you came back to Australia, you had this kind of like entrepreneurial spirit brewing, and you had the idea for Ms. Tyler quite a while ago. You registered the domain name in 2014, but you didn't start working on the brand until 2019. So talk to us about that five-year period. Were you just kind of like marinating on this idea? Yeah. I mean, honestly, like I have so many ideas. Miss Tyler was one that I, I mean, usually it's like my own problems that I'm trying to solve. I've never actually just like naturally been a person that enjoys reading fashion magazines. I don't enjoy going shopping. I don't know naturally that I'm supposed to like zhuzh the sleeves or like cut something in. Like my friends will like look at me and they'll be like, you realize that's an off the shoulder dress? And I was like, how did I not know that? Like, <laughs> and you got it scrunched up around your neck. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, why are you so uncomfortable? <laughs> I started thinking I need to get more fashionable. I need to like, like what I'm wearing more. So I went to a few of my friends that are really stylish, that always look immaculate and said, let's go shopping. Can you pick out some outfits for me? But what I realized was that they had perfected the art of shopping for themselves. So they were really good at shopping for somebody who was blonde and five foot five and had a C cup. And they really didn't have much of a clue about what would look good on me. And so at the time I was just thinking, oh, I wish I could just go onto Instagram, put in my height and my size and find somebody who looks like me that is more fashionable that I can copy. You know, they can do the job of shopping because they enjoy it and I can just wear whatever they're wearing. And that was kind of the, the concept of it. And it was out of all my ideas, the one that my friends were like, this is the one we, we wish you built. Like, this is the one that we would all be using. So when are you going to build Miss Tyler? And then when I was at Mint Mobile, in my last couple of years, two things that I worked on was I launched affiliate marketing for Mint. The idea is that you click on a link, you go to some e-commerce site and you buy something and there's tracking in that link that says that you sent the traffic 
And so in reward for sending the traffic that led to a sale, they give you commission. You know, 17% of all e-commerce is driven by affiliate now. And then for Mint Mobile, I found that as a brand, it was fantastic because we only paid if we got the sale. It became like in a year, our fastest, most cost-effective acquisition channel. So I started to really understand affiliate and I was like, oh, this makes a lot of sense. And this could be the business model for Ms. Tyler. Mm. And then at the same time, I was running our influencer marketing for Mint. You know, people were really shifting away from macro influencers and celebrities to these micro influencers who they saw as more authentic, that were more engaging. You know, even for brands, they were easier to work with because like, you know, they would post something and then actually reply to the customers. So this power was really shifting to these micro influencers, but the micro influencers weren't getting paid in the same way. And so at the time I was like, it makes a lot of sense that influencers start getting paid on an affiliate basis. So is that the approach you adopted in the early days in terms of recruiting users and also contributors on board the platform? Yeah. So the biggest challenge with Miss Tyler and one of the reasons that I hadn't sort of started it as a side hustle back then is because it is a community. It's not just an app. Only has value when mm. you have lots of people using it. So how mm. do you get that started? That was our first challenge. And, and how we solved that was we use celebrities. So basically you can Google Jennifer Aniston Brass Eyes and find out that she's a 32C. <laughs> and really you can find anything. You can find their like hips, bust, chest mm. measurements, their age, their height, their bra size. So we created a database of 400 celebrities and we tried to be as diverse as possible, even though celebrities aren't as diverse as yeah. you would like. <laughs> and we launched it as a simple web quiz, which allowed us to sort of validate some of our initial assumptions, which is one, women want to find out who they look like. Two, women are willing to provide us with their body data so that we can do that matching. And three, like, is it cost effective to reach women? about this product. So we launched it as a web quiz and within a few months, we had 36,000 women <laughs> do this quiz at less than 20 cents per wow. full completed quiz, including an email address. And so not only, it, like basically it was a Facebook edit and like my one of my body doubles is Alexa Chung. So it was like Alexa Chung and then it would say like 98% match and it'd be like, who's your celebrity body double? <laughs> and then that was the Facebook ad. And I only had one ad running the whole time. And it was to one, one audience ad from people landing on the quiz yeah. to putting their email address was 50% conversion, <laughs> which is insane. Crazy. <laughs> insane. And it was just to get your body double. It wasn't like there was like, plus these styling tips no. or, you know, there, it was, it was simply to see who you were most like as a celebrity. Wow. It just goes to show that you don't need, you just need something sticky as a lead magnet yes. to kind of hook people in. It doesn't have to be yeah. big and cumbersome. And so you had these 36,000 email addresses off your really simple but smart proof of concept. Mm. What did you then do with these 36,000 people who were on your email list? Like you would have been like, <laughs> we were like, oh God. now what? Like I've got to nurture yeah. them. What did, what did you do with them? Something. <laughs> we, we literally didn't do anything with those women initially. So what we did, I mean, what, what those women did help us with is like validate those things yeah. and it helped us get our first investment. Yeah. So by that yeah. point, it was kind of like, you know, clearly you as a genius marketer, you've done this. And I was like, well, really, it was just like one ad that I mocked up. And take it, it, just take out, it. Yes, yes, know. I am a marketing genius. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. So, I mean, well, obviously it was an idea that really resonated. Yeah. Yeah. So what we did is we started building with the money that we we just now raised, we were able to start turning this web quiz into an app. And so the yeah. first iteration of Miss Tyler was literally the celebrity body double. It was exactly the same thing, except that you would create an account, 
put in your body data and then you would you would see your celebrity body double and that's all it was but it had another section to it which was if you're a real woman that would like to be a fashion contributor on Miss Tyler apply and they had to create four posts and then submit and so we launched the celebrity body double quiz sorry the app in August 2020 and then by February 2021 we'd had 180 women submit four posts to become mm-hmm. our first, they were, we call them our founding contributors. Yep. We don't use the word influencer because a lot of these women wouldn't consider themselves as influencers, but like they're comfortable, like, you know, sharing their clothes with our community because they're like, you know, I find it hard to like find clothes that fit, but these pants are like super comfortable and I want everybody to know about these pants if they look like me. So we had the 180 contributors and in February we launched them to the platform. What was the incentive for those contributors to come onto the platform and create content for you? There really wasn't too much of an incentive. <laughs> I mean, really, and even even today, I mean, you know, we still, I would say, are pre-revenue. Yeah. Mm. You can buy through Miss Tyler and we're brand agnostic. So we don't tell people these are our partner brands, you have to post this. We're like, if you wear it and you like it, post it. We don't care if we make money or not. Obviously, it's good if we make money, but we want you to post what makes you happy. And then on the back end, we try and make those brands our partners so that we do get money. So at the moment, we do have transactions going through, but it's limited. So the future value for contributors is that any commission we bring in through affiliate, we actually give 80% of that to whoever the contributor is that posted the outfit. So we are taking a small amount so that we can like maintain the platform, but we're giving the bulk of it back to the people that are creating the value. But that's, you know, a while away. And so, you know, when we get to that point, I mean, like it's going to be, you know, obviously by that point, you know, we'll be getting like, you know, our 10,000 applications a month. But at the moment, it's not quite that many, but it's really values-based. So Mm. there is just such a big gap in the market for people to be part of uh, an inclusive fashion Mm. community that is, you know, focused on like any size, any height, any shape, any age, any ethnicity. I mean, actually, like we did a survey and 58% of the people using our app that's, that responded to the survey are more body confident after using Miss Tyler. And it's because, first of all, like just seeing fashion on diverse bodies, it just normalizes everything. And then second of all, being able to find people who look like you makes you feel normal and feel great because not only do these women look like you, but they're super stylish and confident. So when you look at Instagram, there's like a lot of content on there that is really aspirational and you know maybe inspirational but it's like but I'm not 20 in the Mediterranean on a yacht drinking a macrobiotic smoothie you know given to me by like a chef you know so it's like I love that for you but like that's not my life whereas on Miss Tyler like you know the beauty of it is that when you see something that you like it's accessible to you it looks good on them and it's also going to look good on me so the women really joining I think the, the top reason is for values, like just mm-hmm. being part of something positive. I think the second part of it is that there's a lot of women that are just like interested, like, you know, it's a new platform. Like it's cool to be part of the next big thing in fashion. And then you've also got the people that are like, that you know that if you were one of the first people to jump on Twitter or Instagram, then you're the ones who have like a huge audience. And then it gets harder and harder to get an audience. So if you get onto a platform early, like that's the time to like really seize the day and like build an audience. Guess also the value properties. Like I think there's a big conversation at the moment around how can content creators monetize their content. Yeah. Um, you know, we've seen Sunroom just launch, which is an Instagram's trialing subscriptions. And I think part of the value prop to contributors, maybe it's not right now, but in the future is like this can be an additional revenue stream for you as a content creator, which is amazing. 
Absolutely. So yeah, so when we have money going through, we, we've projected that by, you know, in five years time, the average content creator on our platform will be earning $13,000 a year. So it really is a way. And like, you know, obviously there will be some people that are earning a lot more, but it is a way that, you know, like people, no matter where they are in the world can be earning money. Will the challenge be though, you said you're brand agnostic and obviously, you know, there will be that affiliate marketing aspect, but when you have to go and set up those contracts with all the different brands, I mean, there are so many brands and so many products out there. How will you manage that? Will it almost force this shift to people on the app going and just wearing the clothes that, you know, you are partnered with? Like, how are you going to stay on top of that? Because that's going to be a challenge. Well, so, I mean, there's this app in the US called The Yes. Yeah. And I can't even remember how much, but like, you know, fundraising is really, really hard, but they they raised, I don't know, some crazy amount, like $30 million before they'd even launched a product. And, you know, I was like reading their stories and they're like, you know, we flew our team over to Paris and we, you know, met with all the brands, with their marketing teams and we pitched them the product and then we got them on board as partners. And I was like, I sat at my desktop and I signed up to affiliate platforms and then I searched for fashion and a thousand brands came up and I just started going apply, 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 apply. And then I started getting emails. You've been approved. You've been approved. So already we are partnered with like 3,500 brands. When we look at all of our links, over 70% of our links are already affiliate. So there's definitely ways to do this on a relationship basis. And this Mm. is the interesting thing. It's Mm. like, you know, now I've been working this for two years. So technically, I guess I've been in fashion for two years. I still don't know like anyone (laughs) in fashion (laughs) because we've got all these partnerships with these brands, but those brands have maybe never heard of Miss Tyler Mm. because we're an affiliate partner with them, which is great. But then over time, you know, obviously like we'll develop relationships as they see traffic coming in through us, then we can negotiate higher rates and, you know, exclusive discounts for our contributors and and all these other things, which would be really great. But at the moment, I mean, you know, that is actually, that's one of the beautiful things about affiliate marketing is they're designed to be scalable. You set up with one platform and that platform, you have our standard contract with our standard commission structure, publishers can apply. And then you just, I mean, a lot of them are automated. And then sometimes it'll be a person that just manually checks to make sure, you know, this seems like a relevant website will accept it. Yeah. And as you obviously grow there, the brands will see how great of an opportunity is because you'll have all of these users that are on there sharing these looks that it does definitely seem to be authentic. How are you growing your user database at the moment? What are some effective marketing tactics that you're trialing? So for the contributor side, what we do is we actually don't spend money recruiting contributors. We go onto Instagram and we hashtag, you know, outfit of the day and things like that. And we find women that are already posting outfits to Instagram. So they're already doing the behavior that we want. Mm-hmm. And we send them a DM and we say, we love your style. Uh, I shouldn't be giving away these secrets because maybe it sounds like a personalized email. It is, but, uh, <laughs> but basically we love your style. Um, we think you'd be a great contributor on Ms. Tyler. This is what we're yep. about. We'd love you to apply and get involved. So that's how we recruit contributors for users. The bulk of our spend at the moment is still Facebook across Facebook and Instagram. It's definitely had its challenges yeah. with iOS in the past mm. six months, but, but it's still been where, you know, we've spent the majority of our budget. Google has this thing called Google like universal app campaign, which can be really effective, but for our app, it's only relevant for women and you can't do any targeting with Google. Its algorithm is supposed to optimize it, but it hasn't really worked for us. So that hasn't been a great option. And we haven't really done too much on like TikTok, Snap, Twitter. 
but those are things that you know we we want to experiment with more yeah you know a tip for everyone there is a service also called linkby just plugging away like all the things that we've been using but basically what you do is you pitch media outlets with a story idea or a headline and you offer to pay them on a cost per click basis. So it might be that you like different publishers will have different minimums. Like you have to be willing to spend $2,500 if we get you enough clicks. So you put in a bid. So it might be like a dollar or $2 and then you have the, the budget. And then if their editors like the idea and think it would resonate with their audience, then they get their writers to actually create an article. PR in general is obviously great and mm-hmm. authentic. This is still sort of authentic because they're only doing it if they think it's great for their users. But because they paid on a cost per click basis, they add links all the way through it. Mm. So it really drives people through. So rather than people just sort of like reading about it, they're actually clicking through and downloading. And in the early days, we had a BuzzFeed article that was through LinkBee. And we literally got 5,000 accounts through this one article. Wow. It was just insane. I want to talk a little bit about fundraising. You've mentioned that you raised cash early on after you proved the concept. Can you talk us a little bit about that process? What was it like for you? I joined an accelerator program called Antler, uh, which is actually why I came back to Australia. I actually hadn't been planning to leave the US, but I really wanted to do startups. And I like Antler had just launched in New York. So I thought, amazing, it's a six-month program. If I get into Antler in New York, maybe they can sort out my visa and so I get the best of both worlds. I get to stay in New York and work full-time on a startup. I got accepted, but then they couldn't figure out the visa. And so they said, well, would you consider coming and doing the Australian Antler? And at the time, I hadn't Mm. thought about coming back to Australia, but suddenly it seemed to make sense. And in hindsight, I got back the end of December 2019 and COVID struck, you know, two and a half, three months later. So I was so fortunate. Divine timing. Yeah. Yeah. So part of the Antler program is it's split into two parts. So the first three months is actually designed to try and help you find a co-founder, develop an idea, spend time validating it. And then at the end of three months, you pitch to an investment committee. And if they like you and your idea and so on, then they give you your first check. And then you spend another three months working alongside those founders that have got the money and building your business with like advice and coaching. First investment committee was to Antler. So you already had a relationship. Like it wasn't like I was going out to try and find somebody to pitch Mm -hmm. to. You're doing it alongside all these other founders. You're seeing everybody else's pitches. So like it was kind of like a bit of a handheld process. I think only a third of the companies got funded. So there was definitely like still a risk, you know, Mm -hmm. a big risk that you don't get funded. But, you know, that was fantastic to have the first check, the first bit of money to get started. And then at the end of the Antler program, they did a demo day where you basically pitch live on stage. This one was remote because of COVID, but 2000 investors tuned in. So huge. you had like so many people like listening to this and, you know, Brian Hart, he's one of my early investors and he found me by listening to this demo day. So he literally, I like opened up my email and I saw this email like, hi, Sarah, I'm Brian. You know, I'd be interested in chatting to you about your company. And he is just like, the most incredible person. We sat down for two hours and we just talked about like our families and our lives and, you know, the idea. And he said to me, he's like, Sarah, you're really, you're not selling t-shirts, you're selling confidence. You know, like it's about the emotion of this. And he came on as like one of my first investors after Antler and has been super supportive all this way through. So 
through Antler, I mean, like that was obviously the first check and it also was opening up to a network of investors. And so what were some of the challenges that you experienced during that process? You said that fundraising is hard and, I mean, we hear the stories of people mm. kind of banging on doors and pitching and pitching and pitching and yeah. you know, being continuously asked questions and continuously having to provide more information over a long period of time, which I imagine is, you know, incredibly tiring. <laughs> it, it is so exhausting. Like some meetings are really great and, you know, it's more of a conversation. And, I mean, recently I was in the US meeting with US investors. The best way to meet with investors is to not be pitching. Yes. <laughs> like that's like rule number one. Like never be like don't be pitching when you first meet them and develop a relationship first because then they they're not guarded. But like those conversations were great. They were like, oh, so you're kind of doing this, this, and this. And so you're tapping into this thing. And I was like, exactly. Like they were almost like selling it to me, which is mm. like that's the best type of meeting. But then you have these other meetings where like they don't totally get it necessarily or like Honestly, sometimes I feel like it's an ego thing and they're just trying to like see you fail. They're trying to like ask you enough questions until they get to a point where you can't answer the question anymore. And like your job is like to answer every question. So you feel like a complete failure when you can't answer Mm. a ridiculous question. So they can be really, really exhausting. And you're kind of like always on. You're like bright faced and energetic and like doing this. And then you like leave the meeting and you're like slumped down and you're like absolutely exhausted. And you're like, okay, I got to do it again. And then in between that, like you're firing off emails and you're working on the stuff. Plus, you're trying to actually like, build the business because, you know, the faster the business looks good, the easier the story gets. And looking back now, it seems like I've successfully like been able to raise money, but it took me a year to raise my first million dollars. And that was like pretty much like nonstop, like pitching. It was really hard. And I was also like looking at all these other companies that were just like, honestly, like male led companies that were just Mm. raising a million dollars off the bat. And I'm like, how much traction have I got? Like I've built the app. I've had such a clear idea about what I'm building. I'm like a serious, like, you know, I've founded a company before. Like I had all these tick boxes and I had all this stuff and it was so much harder. It felt like (laughs) for me. And I mean, it's hard for everyone, but I definitely, I mean, I say this, but it's also backed up with research. It's much harder for women. It is. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously we know that less than 3% of, you know, funding goes towards women. Why do you think it is more difficult for women? came across his research by this woman called Dana Cairns and she'd been a founder. She'd gone through the process and she was like, she had a male co-founder and she said, I was getting different questions to the questions that my co-founder was getting. And then she ended up leaving that company and going into research and she started researching gender bias, like implicit gender bias in startup fundraising. Mm-hmm. And what she found and now knowing this research and looking back, this is so spot on. This is exactly what was happening. I just, I guess, didn't have a direct comparison, but women get asked prevention questions, which are about risk. So even if you're doing well, it's like, but how are you going to maintain that growth rate? Or how are you going to like hold on to the market share? Or what happens if new competitors come into the place? So they're all completely reasonable questions that investors can ask. But women get asked predominantly, I think it's something like 70% of the questions are around prevention and risk. And so even if you answer these questions really well, you're basically steering a conversation down this path of like all the downsides that are possible for the business. So even if you come through answering all these questions amazingly well, they're kind of like, okay, well, she seems like competent. It sounds like a good idea. She's got ways to mitigate the risk, but it doesn't seem that exciting. Versus on the other hand, male founders get like 70% or so promotion questions like, how big is this opportunity? Like, what is the size of the market? Like, 
what are these things that are so exciting and tell us about these people that are in your team and like what is this strategy so all of a sudden like they leave those conversations really thinking oh my god this could be the big one like you don't want to miss out on this and sure there's risks of course there's risks like this is startup everything's risky but this opportunity so there's like that really dichotomy between like okay, like we haven't really talked about the opportunity. So it doesn't seem that big, but it seems quite risky. And there's ways to mitigate that versus like, oh my God, you can't miss out on this. So what did you learn then? Was it going in there and changing your approach or your responses? Like, should we just go in and act like a politician and just uh, answer what we want to answer and not worry about the question <laughs> too much? Bullshit, yeah. bullshit your way through bullshit the you way you Actually, I'm going to tell you about all the good things that can happen in this business. Yes. I mean, maybe that's what we need to do. What did you learn? What did you change in yes. order to have a more positive conversation? Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly haven't masked this. It's something that, you know, even with my like peers that are female founders were like, we need to go into rooms and just practice answering prevention questions with promotion answers, Mm -hmm. which is essentially the trick. The research shows that if you do do that successfully, then it really can have a huge impact in the amount that you're able to fundraise. It's not at equity, but it's closer. And so it's things like, you know, how are you going to hold on to your market share? Well, we're working in such a big and fast growing market that there's bound to be new competitors entering, but we're going to leverage, you know, our unique assets. And this is honestly from Dana Cans. I'm not making yeah, this up, yeah. but you know, like she, you know, gives an example like that because you can't be seen to not answer their question. So you don't want to seem too much like a politician. You want to answer their questions, but you want to like give it the flair of flair like, sales. You know, yeah. focusing on yeah. the, you know, on the upside. Yeah, mm. definitely. And it takes practice. And I think that's why there's, there are so many great programs out there that, you know, we can go and participate in and learn how to pitch. Anna and I went through one. So yeah, there are definitely mm. opportunities out there to improve this skill. It's such a, a worthwhile exercise to just like, you know, the questions you're going to get asked and just like rehearse like a way to answer them. Role play. Mm. Did you do a lot of that? I did a little bit myself, but like I always talk with my, some female founders that sort of were in a network together. And we always like say, we need to actually get into a room and we should actually just bring in a coach Mm. to to coach us and do these group sessions because we probably wouldn't do that on our own. But if we could get a group together, we can at worst case, just between us role play, but best case actually have someone coming in and like refining and honing those questions. So not something I've done yet, but it's definitely something I'm about to head into our next round of fundraising in May. So it's, you know, got to get ready to like rebuild my energy and get ready to pitch again. So it's pretty clear to me and to us that you're a very determined, very energetic, very like vibrant, charismatic person. And I can imagine that you are so passionately building this business and spending so much of your time and energy doing it. How do you kind of cultivate or balance that with like healthy habits that set you up to kind of succeed and not drown and not burn out? I don't think I do a great job of it, honestly. I was like, I really hope I sleep well tonight because otherwise I'll come on here and be like, don't ever go into startups. (laughs) But no, I I, I honestly... Is that today's message? Exactly, exactly. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Go get a job with a salary. Yeah. I mean, I came back prepared to to sort of be a founder. And I think having six mm. years of pent up entrepreneurial energy, like really helped me go through that. One thing that I've always done is I try and do 10,000 steps a day. And even if I don't do it on a daily basis, by the time I get to the month, I need to have averaged out at 10,000 a day. So even when things get too busy and I can't do anything else, that's kind of like my one basic thing. After the last round of fundraising or sort of my, my first sort of post-Antler fundraising, which finished in April last year, 
I literally emailed about 10 retreats and said, can you fit me in in any dates? Because I was just so burnt out. I hadn't been eating properly. I hadn't been exercising properly. I was like literally running on adrenaline. I I thought I'm going to have a heart attack. Like I, you know, I need to do something. So I went to a place for five days where they fed me and I could rest. I'm like very wary that every time you go into a fundraise, you kind of end up in that same position. So definitely now like I've got more people around me, like there's, there's more support, which is great. You know, the relationships are easier. I'm hoping that it's going to be a bit smoother, but it's definitely hard. And also coming into the third year this year, it accumulates. The fatigue really accumulates. So I really got to a point where I was like, oh my God, every, if you'd asked me any single day in the last two years, I'd be like, you couldn't pay me like millions of dollars to be doing anything else. I love this so much. And then this year I'm like, oh my gosh, do I go get a job? Like, is it, is it worth it? Cause it's, it is like a huge, <laughs> it's a huge sacrifice. Like it, it is. is, it's, it's your life. I mean, you sort of, you aren't seeing friends as much, like particularly if you're like, or because you're not earning a salary, then you're not saying yes to all mm. the fun trips and going out to all the dinners. You're not so like putting yourself out there as much. And it really, like, I was speaking to my dad. We were having coffee, and you know, I haven't, I, I didn't pay myself at all the first year, so it was all just coming out of savings. The second year, I paid myself forty five thousand dollars, so it didn't cover my living costs. So I was going into savings still. And my dad said, if you spend $100 a month and you earn $99.99, you'll be stressed. And if you earn $10.01, you'll be happy. And it, it literally is that. It's like, if your bank account is constantly going down, you just see your own personal runway mm. closing in on you. And every time you make a decision, you're thinking, is this worth reducing my personal runway? Like I've got the money to spend, but it's reducing that runway. And so I, I think as a, it was honestly like decision fatigue. Yeah. It was like, I was making so many I was thinking, overthinking everything about every dollar that I was spending. And so I ended up speaking to our COO and speaking to a couple of our advisors. And I ended up giving myself a pay rise that would cover my cost of living. It's still not a huge salary, but it is a game changer. And honestly, that like lifted off a lot of weight that I didn't know that I was carrying. When you first start a company, you're initiating everything. There is no momentum yet. So you're starting every email, you're thinking about every idea, like everything starts with you. And if you're not doing anything, nothing is moving ahead. So you can't stop. It actually becomes easier, like when the business has a bit of momentum, because it's much easier to respond to an email or like review somebody else's work than doing it all yourself. So that does take a toll. And then, you know, it's also the idea that, you know, when you're a startup person, you're not spending all your time doing the things you're good at. You're spending all your time doing things that you're bad at. That and rejection. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Layer it with that. Like, you know, rejection from everyone around you. Yeah, absolutely. Like it, it, it takes a toll. It does. Yeah. Sure. But you have to, you have to create those healthy habits and you have to look after yeah. yourself and you have to have great support yeah. around you. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, like the, the world of, especially if you've got a business that requires like venture capital mm. or like outside investment, then the only reason somebody's going to invest in you is because you could be a billion dollar company. Mm. You know, it's like if you could potentially one day be a million dollar company, they're not interested. But if you could one day be a billion dollar company, they're interested. You basically are selling a story and a vision that year five, we're going to be making a hundred million dollars in revenue a year, which is kind of like the magic number that means that you are a unicorn. Mm. So that's the story you're selling and that's what you're working towards. But then there's also the fact that 96% of these companies are going to fail. 
So your two outcomes are either billionaire or bust. <laughs> and so like, you're on this roller coaster where every day you're like, am I going to be a billionaire? And then you're like, no, we're going to be bust. No, we're going to be a billionaire. Like but there's nothing in between. How often does that go through your head? And how do you quieten that voice? Because I mean, you've obviously got a goal, you've got a job, you've got to get there, but you're right. You're like, it's seesaw. You're, you're teetering. You know yeah. that it could go one way or the other. What do you do with that voice? I mean, I think you just, first of all, you just have to believe that you are going to get there because otherwise it would not be worth it. So you really just have to, at your core, think this is going to work out. The second thing is that, you know, you have to be aware of your financial runway. Like, and when that's coming down and you've only got a couple of months, that's really stressful. But when you've got enough money in the bank and you know that you have like six months or more in the bank, you can kind of put that aside for the moment because you've got time to make mistakes and for things to go wrong. And that's okay. So you don't have to beat yourself up as much. Mm. as like when you're getting down to that runway. So you kind of always want to be raising before you sort of are at that point. So you want to kind of ideally have like three to six months in the bank. When you go to fundraise, you're not fundraising from a position of you know stress or desperation. That really helps. One thing that we've done as a team, which we didn't in the early days, we haven't actually been that good at doing it is, but anytime something went right, we would write it down. So it'd be like, we've got 1000 Instagram followers, you know, or like we launched the app and we have like five contributor applications. Like it doesn't matter what it was. Like we would put in these like milestones, which at the time seemed amazing. And then we would also like put down all the things that went wrong. And at the end of the quarter and literally in a startup, you're growing so fast that by the time you were a quarter in, you'd look back at the things from three months ago that seemed like a big deal. And you're like, oh my God, three months ago, we thought that was a big deal. Look how far we've come. But then also you go back to the things that went wrong and you're like, look at all the things we were navigating. And I think that's sort of like a good practice because it just reminds you, yes, this went wrong or whatever, but like we've navigated things before. That's just like part and parcel of like this business, but we're moving forward. And yeah. I love that. Mm, So good. Because it's a really kind of obvious sign of progress. Like if you're reviewing that every three months, it's like, oh, crap, we've actually come a long way. We've done a lot. Yeah. (laughs) So we have one last question for you. We always like to leave our listeners with one piece of unconventional advice. What's one piece of advice you'd give them that they may not have heard before? If you think of a good business name, just buy the domain. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, that didn't work for me. And I actually have loads of domains that I own. Um, Oh, you're hoarding them all. That's where they are. (laughs) No, but I mean, honestly, like I would say that when you're getting started, like say yes to everything. Like don't think about your time and don't think about like whether it's worth it. Just do it. I did like one. It was like a new media streaming news service. And I did like a three-minute thing with them. And then somebody emailed me and said, Hey, I saw that you just did this. I've been asked to do it. Do you think it was worth your time? And I was like, it's three minutes. Like, you know, like, is your time really that valuable that you can't just like spend three minutes just chatting to someone? I was like, the time that you would take to research and reach out to me and ask that, like, you're already spending more time doing that. Plus it's always good practice and you never know where it's going to lead. And also if they are a startup media company, we're startups. We rely on people doing us favors. If you're just doing it for the goodwill of helping them out, that's great. So I just think say yes and just turn up to events. You just never know who you're going to meet. You need to build a network. So just say yes to everything. And I guess to follow on from that, David, the CEO of Ultra Mobile, Mint Mobile, who I worked very closely with, he would always say yes as a mantra. And so for instance, like when a new opportunity came into the business, it's just very easy to say no and say like, that's not you know our core focus. That's a distraction. We don't have resources, just no. Whereas like what he would do is he would say, okay, assume that we're doing this. How would we do it? 
And so then you'd spend even an hour mapping out because when you think that you're doing it, you then start actually thinking, well, if we had to do this, how would we do it? And you get to the end of that process and you actually find that actually maybe we can do it and it does make sense, but it's so easy to naturally just say no. So you should say yes. And the other thing I think about with this is that your opportunities change. Like as you get bigger, things become available to you that weren't available to you before that you might not have even imagined. And so if you create a strategy that you stick to, and there's obviously like a lot of good reasons why you should stick to a strategy. But if you stick to that strategy, you might be missing out on these opportunities that are so much bigger and better that you just had never dreamed of before. That was such a great conversation with Sarah. The first thing that I took away is validating your idea first. 100%. We always say to people in our community and people that we work with that they should validate their product or service idea before they go to market. It saves Mm -hmm. so much time and energy because (laughs) if you validate, then you know whether people are going to buy or not. And I think Sarah's quiz that got 36,000 people on her list before she even had a product was the perfect example, wasn't it? It's brilliant. And I love that you can pop some ads up on Facebook, trial different creative, different angles, different product or service ideas, and see what people are clicking and subscribing or downloading. Like that is honestly the easiest way to validate anything. To help you actually figure out whether your product or service has legs, to help you figure out whether customers are going to pay for it before you invest all of your time and money and energy in creating it, we have created an idea validation mini course. It's a really, really simple framework that steps you through the process of figuring out if your idea is any good. If you want to download it for free, check out the link in our show notes, or you can find it on our website, ladybrains.com.au. The other thing I loved about this chat is when Sarah was talking about affiliate marketing as a strategy of generating sales, not only with brands like she's doing, but with influencers as well. It's not necessarily the first marketing strategy that comes to mind, but it is an interesting one to explore. So if you haven't thought about affiliate marketing, do some research. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've been poking around on a couple of brands' websites and what I've noticed is that they're putting affiliate marketing links in their footer and it just allows anyone, you, me, anyone to come along and to be able to apply to become an affiliate marketing partner. And so it's removing this barrier you know, between how people interact and do business and how we become partners. So I really love that. Another really great lesson and great takeaway from this conversation is when Sarah was talking about That process of fundraising, she was being asked questions that were all risk-based rather than kind of opportunity-based questions. And so if you're thinking about either raising capital or perhaps you're just going in and having a conversation about your business or you're, you know, you're trying to pitch for sales, I think you need to think about how can you respond to those prevention questions with promotional answers. Think about what good your business is doing. What are some of the wins, the traction that you're seeing with your business and lead with that. Obviously, you need to answer the question, but yeah, really think about what kind of question am I being asked and how can I mold my answer to really focus on the opportunities that you may need or you may get in response to that answer. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to download the free idea validation mini course, remember to check out the link in the show notes or head to our website, ladybrains.com.au and you'll find it under the resources tab. 